Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, January 17, 2024, and today will be better than yesterday. Working from the Schwenk Studios back in Connecticut is Taylor Schwenk. I'm working from my home in Montana, where Taylor, over the weekend, it dropped to minus 38. As you know, I have a you know a two-year-old dog named Quinny. Uh, she was the star of my trip across country last summer. Well, I let her out on early on Saturday morning, and she took two steps out into the cold and basically just turned around and was like, the hell with that. I'm not doing that at minus 38. I kind of figured that would be her response. It's, you know, she likes to go swimming in a cold lake and everything. She's all about the winter weather, but uh, it sounds like a bridge too far. Did you get cold inside the house? I feel like your insulation for your home can't even keep up with that cold. Yeah, yeah, no, the houses out here are, are you know, they're. Built I guess that's for standard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everyone, and, and you know, it's it. Yeah, we we uh, we're very fortunate. Our cars started. Um, you know, we we're in a good place, but uh, it was cold. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah. yeah, no question. All right, on the podcast today, Tim Kirkchin will be joining us. We're going to be talking about some of the big uh, or unsigned guys and where they might land, Jordan Montgomery and Blake Snell and Cody Bellinger. By the way, uh, since I taped with Tim this morning, and I haven't told you this, Taylor, talked with a a high-ranking executive with another team who tells me the Cubs, watch the Cubs. They're going to be super busy the rest of the winter. Uh, Sarah Langs will join us to play the numbers game, uh, and Paul Hembikides Hembo has some thoughts about three Hall of Fame candidates Billy Wagner, Gary Sheffield, and Chase Utley. We also got some big news after I taped with Tim. This from the Associated Press. Amazon will partner with Diamond Sports as part of a restructuring agreement as the largest owner regional sports networks looks to emerge from bankruptcy. Diamond owns 18 networks under the Bally Sports banner. Of those, 11 are with Major League Baseball. And look, it's a complicated situation. I'm not going to get into the weeds. But generally speaking, what you hear from teams is that it is going to loosen the purse strings for some of the clubs in the second half of this offseason. Some other news and notes. Dusty Baker's returning to the Giants as a special assistant in their front office. Uh, The Giants last week agreed to terms with Jordan Hicks. Four years, $44 million deal. He's going to transition from a reliever into a starting pitcher. Marcus Stroman and the Yankees agreed to a two-year, $37 million deal. I'll tell you why in the podcast. Uh, I think they're going to be aggressive on another starting pitcher. The Yankees also agreed to a record $31 million salary with Juan Soto. He was going through arbitration. The Oakland Athletics, the complete disgrace that they are, got Major League Baseball and Union approval to receive revenue sharing in 2024 because you know what? The Athletics are working so hard to, uh, to put out a representative product. The Astros, Kendall Graveman had shoulder surgery. He's going to miss the entire 2024 season. Sean Doolittle, great pro, uh, you know, friend of the podcast, someone I've known for a long time, is hired by the Nationals as a pitching strategist. The Mets signed Miguel Guerrero, the son of Hall of Fame slugger Vladimir Guerrero, as the international signing period began. The Braves are perceived to have signed the best of those prospects. Shortstop Jose Perdomo got $5 million. But, you know, with a lot of the uh, international players, the amateur players in the United States, you just never know until we see them progress as we go forward. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, I uh, recorded an episode of the College Game Day podcast this morning. I have a message from Reese Davis to you. Okay. He, he says, 
Thank you for taking Taylor off my hands this morning. You're doing a bigger favor than you would know. So <laughs> that's how I'm viewed over there, Buster, which is fine. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Biting. So listen to the College Game Day podcast. Reese talked to Nick Saban and Jim Harbaugh last week, which is like an incredible I know. Thing. He was all over the place. He was like a star. Yeah, yeah. So we have a really good – he gives us thoughts on all that. He debriefs Pete on it. It's really, really good stuff. So check it out, the Game Day podcast. You can watch it on YouTube or listen on this platform. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's code baseball. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com Buster. Just go to Indeed.com Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Seam heads rejoice. This is Timmy time. Baseball is the greatest game. With Tim Kirkson. It never disappoints you. On Baseball Tonight. Tim Kirkson, of course, covers baseball for ESPN. Tim, how you doing? Haven't talked to you in a while. I'm doing okay, Buster. How's it going? I'm doing great. It's out. It just started snowing here. Uh, the 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 conditions have lightened up here. It's gone from minus 38 to minus 28 on Sunday to now where it looks like we're having some snow, probably about three or four inches. But you're driving into snow today, right? Well, uh, we had uh, about six inches yesterday, so I spent about three hours shoveling snow yesterday, and I'm a little too old. A little too tired and a little too small to be doing three hours of shoveling yesterday, but I got it all done. Today I'm driving to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, where there's not going to snow today, which is great. It's like 10 degrees, but I'm going there to make a speech tonight uh, with the cross cutters in Williamsport, one of my favorite places to go. I do this once a year, so I'm I'm really looking forward to it. So do you, when you go and make speeches, you have so many stories off the top of your head. Do you prepare for these things? Uh, no. In fact, <laughs> last year, Gabe, Cinepop, uh, Gabe, who runs the whole thing, he he put me on the spot. He said, I'm just going to give you 
I'm going to say five names to you, and I want you to tell me your favorite story. And thank goodness I had a story for each guy, because that's that's a lot of pressure. I hope he doesn't do the same thing this year, but I hopefully I'll be ready. All right, so it's well established that you love baseball. Uh, the Cubs just signed a guy who I also think first signs are he really loves baseball, Shoda Imanaga. This was at his opening press conference with the Cubs. Give a listen, Tim. Hey, Chicago. What do you say? <laughs> Cubs gonna win today. Recognize those lyrics, Tim? I didn't hear the first part. What, what did he say? Well, Hi, go Cubs, go. He was he went oh. into kind of you know at the end of the day. I just thought it was cool. What a cool way to introduce yourself to to the Cubs. I I talked to one executive. Uh, about the the bidding on Inmanaga, and he kind of laughed, and he goes, yeah, I think that they had a pretty good shot since he was in Chicago the last four weeks before he signed with the team. <laughs> What'd you think? Well, well, that's priceless, and God bless him for learning even just a few sentences because I, I can't speak any language other than English, and sometimes I struggle with that. And for anyone to even come up with and be that clever with his introduction, that's that's just beautiful. More important, that guy can really pitch and he may end up being a bargain for them, given, even though he's much older than, you know, Yamamoto and others. He's got a really good idea what he's doing. We saw that in the WBC. I think he's going to be very good for them. And you're right. He's off to a great start. All right. This winter, we've spoken so much about the Dodgers because they've uh, committed over a billion dollars in their signings. Uh, and, and today with you, I want to talk about some of the teams who are at the other end of the spectrum. Teams that have drawn some uh, friendly fire from their fans because they have not been aggressive. And just to ask you what you should we should make of these teams. And let's start with the Cubs, you know, who have not gone out there and not done the big signings. We don't know if Cody Bellinger will eventually land back with the Cubs right now. But I, I must say, because the bar is so low in the National League Central, I look at that team knowing that Craig Council's taken over as manager, and I'm I'm thinking I'm going to pick them to win the division. What about you? Yeah, I think it's a very winnable division, which doesn't say that much about the division, but the Cubs are good enough to win that division. And as of the moment, I would probably pick them to win the division. However, I don't think they're done by any means going to get some help for that team. Cody Bellinger is the perfect fit for them. We've heard Reese Hoskins might end up going there, but they need to bring Bellinger back. And, you know, when Dansby Swanson comes out and says, we got to have him back. And people on that team listen to the shortstop. We know that. Uh, to me, he would be the perfect fit. I think their pitching is pretty good. They can always use another pitcher, reliever, or starter. But I think if they get Cody Bellinger, I will definitely pick them to win the division because I think they'll be the best team. I think they're out there looking at all sorts of things, and they're far from done in this offseason. The most aggressive team in that division this winter, I feel like, has been the Cincinnati Reds. But I, I still think that there's a ways to go for them in terms of, uh, you know, separating themselves from other teams in the division. Yeah, well, athletically, we know uh, they are dynamic. Um, we know they can score runs, which we saw. We know they have power pitching, but. You know, it's a hard game to play, Buster, and a lot of these guys are still learning how to play it on the major league level. So. 
would I could I see myself picking the Reds? Of course, that's how talented they are. But, you know, everyone figures you out after one year and then the adjustments have to be made the second year. We'll see where a lot of these guys go in their second year. I love the way that team played, especially down the stretch last year. But I'll go with a slightly more veteran team with the Cubs at this point. So I think that Bellinger and Snell, who are both Scott Boris clients, they're kind of in the same boat, Tim, just from talking to people in the industry. You know, that what they each of them did last year was dynamic. You know, Bellinger making the changes, uh, putting the ball in play more, uh, you know, being a, a more effective player. Uh, Blake Snell, you know, had a terrific season. I can't remember. I looked this up uh, a couple weeks ago. I can't remember the exact number, but it was like 13 of his last 22 starts. He didn't allow any runs. But I think everyone in this industry now, which is veered toward fear of uh, the unknown, uh, of things that they can't control, the the respective histories of Bellinger and Snell is similar, the ups and the downs. And that's what's kind of, I'm hearing from club executives, kind of scaring teams a little bit. Yeah, and I, I certainly understand why. I mean, Cody Bellinger had three real off seasons until he recovered. But the way he recovered was so impressive because he recognized, I got to be able to hit left-handers better. I have to put the ball in play better. And he did such a good job with both of those. I think... I think he has refound what he had in 2019 and I would take shot at him because he's still really young. He's wildly athletic. He can play three outfield positions at a gold glove level and he can play first base. Uh, I would go after him despite three years of down. Um, as for Blake Snell, Buster, go look at that. I know you have go look at those numbers again when he throws his change up his curveball and his slider. Nobody, nobody hit any of those three pitches last year. He was basically the hardest pitcher, starting pitcher at least, to hit in the major leagues last year. And even though he walked nearly a hundred guys and you know, he barely averaged six innings per start, I, I would take a run at him also. The danger, of course, is Buster that's still amazing to me. More Cy Youngs, too. Then complete games zero in his career. That that's a bit of a of a red flag. But look, you you got to take a chance with a starting pitcher, and I would take a chance with him also. Here's one of the reasons why I would take a chance on him, and I and I really haven't learned this until the last three years, and I'm not quite sure why because I you know spoke with him early in his career, but you know when you have a conversation with him, Tim, he's he's a little different, right, than a lot of his peers. Uh, He's a baseball nerd. Like, you know, we we all talk about Max Scherzer, how much he loves numbers, how much he loves the game, and how he studies the game. I think Blake Snell is actually very similar in personality how much he, he loves baseball. I, have you had the similar kind of experience that I've had? Yeah, he really loves the game, and he knows a little bit about the history of the game, which is rare for a player. And you're right. He's different. You know, he owns like, I don't know, like 500 pairs of sneakers. Right. He's like the greatest, you know, video game guy ever. And he, you know, I think I shouldn't say this, but I think he forged his father's signature when he was in high school so he could play football because he so badly wanted to play football. Yeah. And his dad didn't want him to because he was a baseball player and he wanted, he thought he might get hurt. And he said, I love to play football. I need to play football. So he forged his dad's signature in order to play. Um, he's just so different that uh, I would take a shot at him also. And he's been 
you know, he's been fairly durable too. Not the innings pitch, but going out there, he seems to go out there every time these days, and that that says something. All right, the Boston Red Sox, as the winner goes along, as you know, increasingly getting uh, negative feedback from its fan base because of what Tom Werner said early in the offseason, saying that the team is going to go full throttle. It's been anything but that. Uh, you know, they took a run at Yamamoto, but you and I know that uh, people in baseball don't think that they were ever really in the picture to get the the right-hander. Uh what do you make of the Red Sox, where they are now, especially because the context is we're going into the last year of Alex Cora's contract, and I don't think it's a sure thing that he winds up uh, managing that team in 2025. Yeah, I, it has been a disappointing offseason for the Red Sox. Look, I understand why they cr- ch- traded Chris Sale, but now they need to add another starting pitcher, and they simply haven't done that yet. Because they have to upgrade that pitching. They're, they're going to score enough runs, I think. And they're still in on Adam Duvall and Justin Turner and some guys who played there in recent years. Those guys would really help that team. But, Buster, you can't look at the Red Sox without looking at the rest of the division. My goodness. Uh, the Orioles are really good. The Yankees got better with Juan Soto. The Blue Jays still have a ton of talent, and they're still not done making moves. At least they better not be done. And the Rays are the Rays. The Rays always find a way to win 90 or more and make the playoffs. So this is where the Red Sox have to look at their division and say, we're not good enough to make the playoffs with this team. And they have to do something. But at this point, I'm not sure that's going to happen in any dramatic way. I will tell you, though, I have great faith in Craig Breslow. He's a really smart guy, really smart. Pitched in the big leagues for a long time. He's got some, you know, some Chris Young to him, which I think is important. Um, so I'm going to give him a little time to figure this out. But spring training is about a month away, and their team isn't good enough right now to make the playoffs. I think the Yankees should be a team that seriously looks at signing Jordan Montgomery. The Rangers make a lot of sense for him. I think for the Red Sox, he makes a ton of sense because, yes, even if you don't internally expect to compete in 2024, Tim, their payroll is projected somewhere in the range of $185 million, which is like $50 million under the luxury tax threshold. The Boston Red Sox are about $50 million below that threshold uh, at 12th, 12th uh, out of 30 teams. That's insane to me. And Jordan Montgomery would be a guy who not only would make them more competitive and maybe uh, you know, uh, allow you to, you know, hold him up as, as being an indication that you're really serious about, you know, competing and about spending money. But when they turn the corner under Breslow, and I'm with you, like everybody I talk to talks so highly of Breslow and his ability to develop pitching, by the time they are ready to compete, I think Jordan Montgomery is going to be one of these Jamie Moyer type left-handers who's going to be around a long time. He seems to be getting better and better and better, learning about conditioning, learning about pitch mix, et cetera. Um, And that's why I I think an investment in him right now makes sense. Well, I totally agree. He's better. He's a better pitcher now than he's ever been. He was good with the Yankees. He was better briefly with the Cardinals. Mike Maddox really helped him. He was tremendous with the Rangers down the stretch and in the postseason. And I think the light has gone on for that guy. Plus, he is a silent killer competitor out there. I've been told this. I was around him a lot in the postseason. And once he gets out there, 
Uh, Bruce Bochy told me he's got those crazy maniacal eyes when you go out there to talk to him during a start, which means he is really into what's going on. Aaron Boone told me he's a crazy competitor. So I love those guys. I think he would be perfect for the Yankees, perfect for the Rangers, but I think the Red Sox need him even more. And, you know, by signing a Jordan Montgomery, uh, that also allows you to protect your prospects. You know, we've we've seen a lot of the Red Sox work done this uh, this offseason through trades. I think in this case, you know, with the farm system that Bloom improved, it's not one of the best farm systems, but it's certainly better than it was. Uh, it allows you to keep your prospects. And when you are you feel like the team's ready to turn the corner, Jordan Montgomery can be a guy who can lead your staff. You and I have been texting about the Giants back and forth. I don't know what to un- I don't know what to make of them. And maybe they changed him during the course of the winter when they realized again it was going to be difficult to get people to take their money. They wound up signing Jordan Hicks uh, to uh, you know a four year forty four million dollar contract. They're going to convert him to a starter, uh, and they made that trade for Robbie Ray, which is essentially for two thousand twenty five. What do you make of the Giants? Well, I'm a little confused by them also. Again, they're in a wildly competitive division, even though the Padres clearly are going to take a step backwards from a subpar season. Anyway, Diamondbacks went to the World Series. The Dodgers are the Dodgers. And if the Giants are going to make the playoffs, uh, they're going to have to do more than this. And I'm a little surprised they haven't done more than this. But, you know, again, we, we keep talking about missing on Aaron Judge, Carlos Correa, others. And and I'm just not sure Jordan Hicks, despite having a very good second half of last season, when his stuff is good, he's a really good pitcher. But is he a starting pitcher? Are they going to figure this out for him? Is the new kid Lee in center field going to be the guy that they need every single day? I don't think they've done enough to ter- to take them anywhere where the Dodgers are or maybe the Diamondbacks are. And they're still not done in this postseason, in this offseason. They're going to have to do some more if they're going to get significantly better. All right. The New York Mets uh, still have an enormous payroll, but obviously they're very different than they were a year ago when they had Justin Verlander uh, recently signed. They had Max Scherzer. This winter, they've kind of taken a little step back, but I think the signing of Harrison Bader tells you that internally they think that they can uh, contend in 2024. And that outfield defense, Nimmo seemingly moving to left field, Starling Marte a year removed from his core surgery playing in right field, Harrison Bader in center field, that potentially is a really good defense. I kind of think the Mets are are flying under the radar more than uh, more than they should be. Yeah, I'm not ready to count the Mets out as a contender because they're just so different from last year, but maybe they're different in slightly better ways. And you're right, outfield defense, I'm the biggest believer in the world in outfield defense. I've seen it on my beat writing days when it's the worst, the Orioles in 87 had the worst defensive outfield I've ever seen. And in 89, one of the greatest defensive outfields I've ever seen. And it changed the entire look of the pitching staff. So that outfield defense is going to help. Um, A lot of things have to happen for the Mets. But getting Edwin Diaz back and assuming he's okay, and assuming he's going to be something close to the pitcher he was two years ago is going to be a big boost. And we all know that if a trade needs to be made or money needs to be spent, Steve Cohen is going to spend it. And he's simply not going to turn this into a rebuild season and concede to the Atlanta Braves, even though clearly the Braves are better than the, the Mets right now. But I wouldn't count them out of a playoff look right now. 
All right, I'm going to throw names at you who are you know available stars in the free agent market and just ask you to guess, and that's all it is at this point. It's just a guess on where each of these guys are going to land. Uh, Josh Hader, who is one of the best relievers in the history of baseball, he's still a free agent late in January. What about Josh Hader? Well, again, these are all guesses, Buster. I'm going to say the Rangers are going to go get Josh Hader, in, in part because their bullpen, I'm not sure how they got it done, but they got it done in the postseason last year. But And they haven't spent very much money, and they have money to spend. So I wouldn't be shocked if they're the team that goes and gets him long term. Yeah, and there's an expectation that the RSN uh, issues for a handful of teams are going to be cleared up here in the next couple of weeks. And that when that happens, the money could be freed up for teams like the Texas Rangers. What about Blake Snell? If you had to sit here today, what's your guess? I am really, really confused about Blake Snell. I, I can't figure it out. Uh, the Phillies make sense, even though their pitching is good. The Phillies have money to spend, and Blake Snell would be a, a great addition to what already is a very good starting staff. The, the Mets we keep hearing are they're done going after starting pitching. I'm not sure about that. I, I think he would be perfect there. I think he would be perfect with the Yankees. I think he'd be really good for a lot of teams. I'm going to say... I'm going to say one of those three teams is where Blake Snell ends up. Yeah, I think he winds up with the Yankees. I think as time goes on, uh, you know, his asking price might drop. Uh, you know, the expectation might be might drop. It might wind up being a really lucrative short-term deal. And Blake Snell to the Yankees makes a lot of sense. We know they were in big on Yamamoto. They That was the guy that they wanted. They didn't get in. Uh, they signed Marcus Stroman to a, what is a relatively modest contract. I still think they have some flexibility. And look, last year, Nessa Cortez had a lot of physical issues. You wonder how he's doing coming back from that. Um, what about uh, Cody Bellinger? Do you think he goes back to the Cubs? I do. But again, the Phillies would look so good with Cody Bellinger playing every day in center field. A lot of teams would look so much better. Even though the Blue Jays just signed Kevin Kiermeyer, they could find a place for Cody Bellinger every day. But I think he's going back. I think it makes the most sense for him to go back to the Cubs. Jordan Montgomery, Yankees or Red Sox? Yes. Uh, or I'm Rangers. Gonna say or one of those three, certainly, because the Rangers aren't going to get Montgomery and Hayter. So if they don't get Hayter, I think they're going to bring Montgomery back. But I could see Montgomery returning to the Yankees. But again, as we said earlier, the Red Sox need more than those other teams do. All right. Coming up, we're going to be talking with Paul Ambikides about Billy Wagner and Chase Udley and Gary Sheffield, some of the Hall of Fame candidates for this year. Give me a, a player whose candidacy you're you're kind of keeping a closer eye on just because of his circumstances, because of, uh, you know, uh, you know, stories that you've heard about and performance they had or maybe past voting. Um, well, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with. Um with I'm looking at my ballot with Andrew Jones because he's starting to really gather some steam from people. Uh, I know a couple friends of mine who'd never voted him for him before are voting for him this year. And when you look at the gold gloves, you look at the power, you look at the, the really good teams for which he played. I, I think he's, we're starting to gather some momentum for Andrew Jones and see how much further he moves up 
this year. Um, I know there are a lot of people who wondered, all right, early 30s, he he couldn't play anymore. Like his career ended at 31, but it also started at 19. And you have to look at Adrian Beltre in another way. Adrian Beltre started at 19. He wasn't really great until he was about 31. And then he was great for about 10 years. So they have different kind of uh you know, careers. But Andrew Jones is somebody that I'm looking at seeing he moved up last year. Does he make another big jump this year? You know, a guy whose candidacy I'm watching is Gary Sheffield, because I'm always, Tim, as you know, looking for those barometers that the the writers, that their perspective on steroid era candidates is thawing a little bit. And maybe the fact that Sheffield has climbed, is, uh, you know, the, the early uh, vote, re- vote results are 67 percent he's running at as you and I speak. Uh, with Ryan Thibodeau's uh, the ballots that uh, he's published, that that surprises me that he's gotten that high because it really felt like a lot of writers had decided, look, this is someone who's was in the Mitchell report, uh, and, I, and I'm going to be talking with Hembo about that. Uh, he's someone who's in the Mitchell report and never going to vote for him. It's been interesting to see his numbers creep up. Yeah, I've voted for him every year that he's been on the ballot. And I understand the Mitchell report. I understand the connection to steroids in some form or another. But he had over 500 homers. And when people talk about guys who hit the ball as hard as anyone in the time that Gary Sheffield played, his name comes up awfully fast. I mean, Jim Leland made the Hall of Fame. He talked quite a bit about Gary Sheffield, about what, what kind of devastating hitter he was. As you know, Buster, what really hurts him is he didn't stay with one team long enough to be, you know, the best right fielder in the history of the Padres or, you know, or the Braves or the Yankees or the Tigers. He moved around so much, it's hard to identify him with one team. That hurt Fred McGriff, I believe, in the Hall of Fame voting. Eventually he got in that you couldn't just connect him to a team. That's part of Sheffield's issue. But I look at the numbers, you look at that career OPS way over 900 and you look at 500 homers and his reputation in the game as a a fearsome hitter. Uh, that's why I vote for him every year. And yes, he's moving up the ladder. We'll see how close he comes this year. Well, and you use the word fearsome. As you were talking, I was thinking about this. I think in the era in which he played, in which he starred, that it might be he and Edgar Martinez were the two most feared hitters. Like guys who opposing pitchers like, oh, man, I don't want that guy coming to the plate. You know, Griffey was obviously incredibly accomplished. Alex Rodriguez, incredibly accomplished. But in terms of being a challenge for opposing pitchers in a given plate appearance, I think those two guys scared everybody. Yeah, and I think Sheffield, I think Edgar Martinez was a better hitter than Sheffield. It's really close. But I think <laughs> I think Sheffield was a scarier hitter. I did a story once, Buster, on what it's like to play third base. You know, the danger involved of being that close to home plate with a big right-handed hitter. And I promise you, you know, five out of every 10 third basemen I talked to, the first name that they came up with about – and when Gary Sheffield comes to the plate with the infield in, that's not a place you want to be. His name came up a lot. I think he I think he hooked the ball down the third baseline as hard as any right-handed hitter we saw uh, in our time covering the game. And I maybe that's not enough to get you in the Hall of Fame, but I know there are a lot of third basemen who are really, really happy when he retired. All right, Tim. Well, have a safe drive out to Williamsport. I'll talk to you next week. Okay, Buster, thanks, and good luck shoveling snow. Jumping into the numbers. Numbers. This 
is Hembo Knows on Baseball Tonight. And Hembo, of course, is Paul Ambicades, the highest paid researcher in the history of professional sports, $701 million contract. Hembo, I, I mean, the numbers still make me shake my head. Yeah, you and me both, brother, but I will say this. That lucrative deal is going to enable me to go to Cooperstown next month with some buddies, have an opulent trip sitting there at the hotel at Lake Otisaga, go through the museum carefully looking at every single artifact. Because you know at this time of year, Buster, that's where my brain goes. Well, 100%. You're very passionate about the Hall of Fame. You've been lobbying me behind the scenes for the last three weeks. Let's talk about Hall of Famers. Let's talk about Hall of Famers. So uh, I'm gonna, today is going to be your opportunity to do that. We got uh, about 12 minutes to go, and you got three players to talk about. Number one is Billy Wagner. Buster, what I'm going to do is present the case for Billy Wagner as if you are the judge. Here his case is. So right now he's polling at something like 80% in his ninth year on the ballot. So I do think his induction feels inevitable. But a critic might say, how can we put in a pitcher who threw 300 fewer innings than Babe Ruth and a guy that threw only 11 innings in the postseason and not well? Here's what that critic is missing, Buster. His role, of course, is all about leverage. He was asked to get the most difficult outs, and he was great at it. In high leverage situations, Wagner allowed an OPS of 598. At the time of his retirement, that trailed only Sandy Koufax, Jim Palmer, and Mariano Rivera. All right. Secondly, uh, win probability added, it quantifies the percent change in a team's chances of winning from one event to the next. It does so by measuring the importance of a given plate appearance in the context of a game, as you know. Uh, for his career, Wagner's WPA was 29.1, Buster. For context, I'm just going to rattle off some career totals for other notable Hall of Fame pitchers. Again, Wagner's was 29.1. Uh, Steve Carlton's was 28.1. Fergie Jenkins was 27.7. Lee Smith's was 21.3. And Bruce Suter's was 18.2. In other words, a Wagner impacted winning more than dozens of pitchers that are already in the Hall of Fame. And to hold his lack of innings against him is to diminish the role of closer, which obviously modern metrics support as being critically important. I'd say this, uh, you know, 20 years ago, based on precedent, 30 years ago, I would have never thought about Billy Wagner going to the Hall of Fame, but I adhere to precedent. The mm. writers, the Veterans Committee have decided that the likes of Lee Smith are in the Hall of Fame. And once that happens, no question, Billy Wagner's a Hall of Famer. To me, um, he was his era's version of, of uh, Josh Hader, you know, in terms of being absolutely dominant, left-hander coming in at the end of games. But I will say, you know, a few weeks ago, I sent out some numbers on Jacob deGrom, and so many people answered back. Fans are saying, how can you consider him for the Hall of Fame? He doesn't have enough innings. He's got like 400 more innings than Billy Wagner. Billy Wagner, as you say, Probably going to get in the, voted in the Hall of Fame next week. Yeah, you can't have it both ways. I, I think right. I, I personally think that 900 innings is awfully light, but they were 900 yes. magnificent innings. I mean, the best case against Billy Wagner is he's not Mariano Rivera. Well, guess what? Nobody, Nobody else is. <laughs> is Mariano Rivera. So if we're going to put him in that club of people who impacted the game in that particular way, there's really no strong argument that he should not be in the Hall of Fame. Right. All right. Chase Utley, this one's near and dear to your heart. <laughs> so. Chase Utley's collective body of work, Buster, is, is often minimized. I think his lack of counting stats is probably the biggest reason why he's only polling at 44% in his first year on the ballot. But peak value obviously matters too. And I'm here to tell you that Chase Utley's peak, which is a five-year stretch from 2005 to 2009, is way better than the world remembers. Uh, during that time, he joined Charlie Geringer and Rogers Hornsby as the only second baseman to OPS 900 
in five consecutive seasons. Uh, during that time, he logged 102 defensive runs saved. That was the highest total for any player at any position over that five-year span. Buster, he produced five consecutive seven-war seasons. He and Joe Morgan are the only middle infielders since World War II to pull that off. And it's not just in the regular season in which he thrived, of course. He homered five times in the 2009 World Series. Uh, he and Reggie Jackson were the only two players in the history of baseball to do that at that time. And lastly, Utley reached base safely in 27 consecutive postseason games. That was the longest streak in history when he did it. So we can most definitely have, Buster, a good faith argument as to whether or not he produced enough total value to be in the Hall of Fame. But only if you first acknowledge that his peak, that five-year peak, was the stuff of legend. Uh, and I do. And I think he should get in the Hall of Fame. And again, it, the, the pushback that I get on social media when I've written that before is very similar to what I get on DeGrom, which is he doesn't have enough. He, he, well, you know what? In this era, you're not going to have as much. We may never see another 200-game winner among starting pitchers. You know, with uh, guys like Blake Snell are winning Cy Young Awards, throwing five or six innings in their starts. The sport has changed. We get load management. We got guys sitting more than ever. Uh, I remember the conversation 20 years ago with the great James Andrews. Uh, he told me, he said, as the medicine gets better, players are going to miss more games, which makes mm. no sense when you think about it. But then as he broke it down, once you can start to diagnose degrees of injuries, then players are not going to just grind through. Teams are going to shut them down. And so they're going to be more and more candidates like Jacob deGrom, like Chase Utley, who are absolutely dominant for a shorter period of time, but don't have the accumulated stats of, you know, Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and, and players like that. I feel like you do. I think precedent is exceedingly important. But as we gain information and as eras change, we have to adapt with the times, too. I mean, in Utley's case, he's a three-year college player. He, he rotted in double and triple A unnecessarily long. And that's part of the context, too. When he played and when he was at his best, he was about as good as any second baseman this side of Joe Morgan. And so I'm willing to excuse the fact that he's short of 2,000 hits and some of these other more traditional markers because his was like top five brilliant in the history of a position that has a long and storied history for a century and a half. Yeah, and it sets up the the Buster Posey conversation, right? Mm, I mean, yes. it's, a, it's kind of a similar thing where the guy, unbelievable player, you know, won awards, uh, was an elite guy, but maybe for a shorter period of time than what we talked about with the Hall of Famers 20 years ago. All right. And the third guy is really interesting. Someone who I covered back with the San Diego Padres 1993, and that would be Gary Sheffield. Career numbers, 509 homers, 292 batting average, 1,636 runs, 1,676 RBI, an adjusted OPS of 140 during the course of his career. You'd think he'd be a slam dunk candidate, <clears throat> dunk candidate, but as you know, he was named in the Mitchell Report that the uh, that, that was done back in 2006, and so a lot of voters have basically held that against him. Uh, it's interesting because this week Gary Sheffield sat down with the, our friend Xavier Scruggs and talked about the process that was the Mitchell Report. Give a listen to this. They had me to come in to testify right. against Barry Bonds. Right. I didn't see Barry Bonds do anything illegal. Mm -hmm. And if I had seen that, I'd have been going immediately. But I, had, I didn't see it. Mm -hmm. So now I'm a witness coming in to testify. Now there's two things. There's Congress and there's the Mitchell Report. Right. Why wasn't I at the Congress thing? 
because I wasn't a suspect. Mm -hmm. Why I'm in the Mitchell Report? Because he took what somebody says and no facts behind it because if I'm a witness, how can I be involved? Mm -hmm. Now, when they put me in the Mitchell Report, I remember playing for the Detroit Tigers. Jim Leland, Dave Dabrowski called me in the office and said, Major League Baseball hired this guy, Mitchell. And I said, who is that? And they said, well, he wants to talk to you. I was like, great. <laughs> because now I can tell you, my story. Yeah, get the truth. Right. right. Now the truth will be in your book, opposed to put me in your mm -hmm. book when you never even talked to me. You never even spoke to me. I don't even know who this man is. Hmm. Yeah, George Mitchell, of course, the former senator from Maine. A um, <clears throat> couple things about that. Uh, during that process, as you remember, Hembo, all the members of the union were advised by the union leadership, do not talk to the folks who are generating the Mitchell report, um, which I completely understand because the when they started this thing and they were like, yeah, we're going to find it. We're going to get to the bottom and figure out who used steroids. And I just laughed as a reporter had been covering the sport and you know had been trying to find out, OK, how do you get to the bottom of this story unless you get full on admissions? And there's no subpoena power, right? Unless you get full-on admissions from everybody and you talk to everybody, then it's kind of, you you would lose the context. So the union told them, don't talk to them. As far as I know, there was only one player who talked to the folks in the Mitchell report on the record. Uh, and so the Mitchell, the investigators with the Mitchell report, uh, George Mitchell decided that if we have evidence and you don't counter it, we're going to throw your name out there based on these pieces of evidence you that you had, and they wound up throwing 86 names to the mob in their report. And that's the basis on which about a third of the writers have decided that Gary Sheffield, Andy Pettit, et cetera, are not uh, Hall of Fame worthy, which I find to be a joke, Hembo, especially so when it comes to Gary Sheffield. Yeah, so do I. I, I think the Mitchell report was produced haphazardly in sort of a an emotionally charged moment. And with the benefit of hindsight, I think when we can see that clearly and look at the perspective of what Major League Baseball permitted in terms of the behavior between the 20 yard lines when it came to performance enhancing drugs. Um, a couple of key numbers that I'll provide you on Gary Sheffield. And it sounds like you and I see eye to eye on, on his candidacy. Um, it's my opinion that he's not just one of the great hitters of his generation, but any generation. You mentioned his career OPS plus uh, 140. That's within one percentage point in either direction of David Ortiz, Miguel Cabrera, and Reggie Jackson, are the only members of the 500 home run club with fewer strikeouts than his total are Ted Williams and Mel Ott. And so that's what he did wow. at the plate. And when you consider his impact on lineups, all right, in 1997, he was a um, three and four hitter for a Marlins team that had no business winning the World Series. All right, he on base 424 for that team. He was traded to Atlanta in 2002. He became their three hole hitter, hitter immediately. And in 03, the Braves broke their modern era franchise record by scoring 907 runs. And then he played three years for the Yankees, of course, from 04 to 06. He was a three-hole hitter for those teams, too. And they were the highest-scoring team in all of baseball during that time. There is no question in my judgment that his individual numbers, as you and I have articulated, are Hall of Fame-worthy. And his lineup impact Hall of Fame-worthy. And his connections to those PEDs are far too tangential to hold against him, especially given what we know now about George Mitchell. And especially given the context, look, and this is a you know another opportunity for me to say again, as I've been saying for you know more than a decade, it's time for the writers to get out of the the business of being morality police, right? Gary Sheffield, 
can is a member in good standing as far as Major League Baseball is concerned. He can work for a team, just as Roger Clemens can work for a team, just as Barry Bonds can work for a team. Uh, and for them to base uh, he, you know, a votes to keep him out of the Hall of Fame, while they have to know they're already current Hall of Famers who use PDs, uh, you know, and you can uh, base that on conversations you had with players at the time. You can go and, and uh, do some research for the idea that the Hall of Fame already has guys who took steroids and you're keeping out Gary Sheffield based on this report, which let's face it, it was basically generated so Bud Selig could say, I tried. It was a you know, $20 million report so Bud Selig could have cover for his administration of the steroid era. It's embarrassing for the writers to basically follow like little sheep behind what happened. By the way, Bud, Sel uh, Bud Selig, notably, uh, in the, in Hall, the of Hall of Fame. In the Hall of Fame. Which is definitely worth noting. Before I let you go, and By Bud, the way, I think Bud should be in the Hall of Fame. He did some things that were really important. But the idea that the writers are going to hide behind the Mitchell Report and keeping out the likes of Sheffield and any pet, it's a joke. The last thing I'll say is this. There is nobody that watched Sheffield waggle that bat, hit for the 20 years in which he was a big leaguer, that did not think he was a Hall of Famer. And I find it wretched and despicable, the fact that writers, the electorate, might collectively decide over the course of 10 years that we're going to pretend like that was not the case based on tangential connections to performance-enhancing drugs. Um, it would be a straight-up travesty, and I think we're trending towards that, which is terribly a shame. Yeah, the Mitchell Report, imagine if someone were to like go to the cops and say, yeah, I saw that guy going 70 miles an hour, and then you were like kicked out. You were, you were arrested. I mean, right. that, that's kind of- speed limit it was 55. <laughs> right, exactly. Probably half of the guys who are in the Mitchell Report, they're in the Mitchell Report because of uh, re reporting done by folks like myself. It wasn't actually the Mitchell Report investigators doing the work. Anyway, it's just terrible. All right, Hembo, thanks for doing this. Later, friends. Get out of here, Hembo. Sick exactly of Hembo. Right. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive.
This is The Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing? I'm doing great, Buster. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, so you're doing, uh, you're, you're the brains behind a top 10 that uh, MLB Network is doing. And I remember, you know, we did that for years as, and you helped me with that and, and Hembo helped me with that on ESPN.com. And I, I kind of cringe for you because I know the reaction when, uh, you know, some fans' favorite player is not on a list, how they go over the top. And when Jonah Heim was not in the top 10 of catchers, I was like, poor Sarah. Oh, no. <laughs> well, luckily, as um, I'm going to give a shout out to the old baseball tonight power ranking, we had to do those segments. And Tim Kirkjian would always point out, this isn't my list. We're just talking about the MLB Network official list you see comes from the Shredder, which is this very complex uh, kind of equation they've come up with over the years. I make my own list, which I think about as a separate one which you don't see tweet out, but it's on the show. So I do love people coming after me about a list that wasn't mine. <laughs> when there are people here or there, whatever, female ammunition with mine list, I have no problem with that. But, you know, we get people talking, which I'm sure is what we all want to be doing in January about baseball. So I have no issue with that part. Right. Uh, I'm guessing Jonah Heim then would be it would have been on your list. Yes. Top 10. I believe he was just missed, but only because I made space for Patrick Bailey. We were encouraged to have a wild card this year. So in order to have him, I kind of had to take out one person who I maybe would have won. But I did make space for Yiner Diaz, which I was really, really excited about just in the ALS overall. Yeah, if uh, this is not a, a fantasy focused podcast, but Diaz is one of those guys going into this year's draft is going to be overlooked by a lot of people. It's uh-huh. going to be a big year, no question about it. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about uh, before I talk to you today, talking with an executive with another team who's absolutely convinced that the Chicago Cubs are going to be hyper aggressive the rest of this uh, offseason. And, you know, he he was musing about the possibility. Who knows? Maybe they wind up being the team that signs Cody Bellinger to play first base, Matt Chapman to play third base, uh, you know, along with Horner, along with Dansby Swanson, that infield, which would be ridiculous. <laughs> uh, if you see the Cubs adding, you know, uh, one player, two players, Sarah, what would that do for them? Absolutely. I mean, I think the idea that they will be arrested makes so much sense to me. We talked about this a few weeks ago, maybe back in December. You don't sign Craig Council to the right. deal they signed without also really upgrading the team. We saw the Showtime and August signing, and that has to be the beginning of many. That would be a crazy defensive infield, to your point, adding Chavin. I mean, I can't imagine Chavin. There with Dansby would be incredible. Obviously, as you said, Nico Horner also really good defensively. But I certainly think they'll be adding multiple players because they have to. That's the pressure you put on yourself. 
by signing that manager to that contract. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 25. So we had Rayfield on the show last night in the top 10. And there are a lot of really, really fun players who I'm a huge fan of in Rayfield. So I figured we'd go over a couple of them. So 25 is for the A's that was sort of just turned back in October. So he has two seasons in his career with at least 30 homers and 100 walks. There are only a handful of other guys who have multiple seasons like that before turning 25. Ted Williams, Mallott, Eddie Matthews, Mickey Mal, and Jimmy Fox, and then Juan Soto, who was my number two right fielder. Number two. Number two is 85. We're going to do some percentiles here. So again, you want a higher one. <laughs> that means you're better. So there were four qualified players in the 85th percentile or better last year in both strikeout rate and hard hit rate. So guys who hit the ball hard but don't sacrifice the swing and miss in order to do something. Yandy Diaz, Mookie Beth, Vlad Jr., and my number one right fielder, Ron Acuna Jr. Number one. Number one is 90 for another percentile. So there were three players last year who were in the 90th percentile or better, both sprint speed and hard hit rate. So guys who are power speed guys. Yeah, Mike Trout still there, even with his age. And Julio Rodriguez, of course, and Fernando Tatis Jr., who is now on the right fielder list and will be in there for a while. I just think it's amazing that we have Acuna, Soto, and Tatis in right field on this top ten. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's interesting. They last yesterday when the Braves uh, went through the international signings and they locked up Jose Perdomo. A lot of people comparing uh, Perdomo to Ronald Acuna Jr. Uh, one thing before we go, I asked him this question about uh, next week's Hall of Fame announcement. If there's one player in particular who's voting, he's uh, he's interested in for you. Who might be a, a player who would fit that category? I mean, I think the entire conversation around Joe Maurer has been really interesting. Obviously, an incredible peak. The career ended a little more quickly than he or anyone would have liked in terms of production. For a while, it looked like maybe based on public ballots, he might be trending to get him. Looking now like he probably won't based on past trends. I'm very interested to see where he starts. And one other, Chase Ali, who to me is a Hall of Famer, and I see you smiling, and I wonder if it's because you know how I felt about Chase Ali when I was about 15 years old, that I'm a grown-up <laughs> now. I know stats, I know baseball, I am objective, and I think he's a Hall of Famer. I know he won't get in this year. And I'm very interested to see what his starting point ends up being. I feel like, Sarah, and I didn't say this this directly, 
with uh, with Hembo. But if Chase Utley gets in the Hall of Fame, I don't know how you keep Jacob DeGrom out. Because the big question about uh, Utley is the counting stats, and that would be the big question about DeGrom. There can be no questioning that both of those guys had stretched in their careers where they were completely dominant. Absolutely. I mean, I do think for Utley, the position, it's what really helps him as well. DeGrom doesn't have that benefit because there are so many amazing pitchers and there are fewer Hall of Fame caliber second basemen. But even so, I mean, I think both of them end up there eventually. All right, Sarah. Well, good to talk to you, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Wednesday. Hollis Pierce, Cyborg, Cyborg Hollis writes in, do you think that the Mets will sign a DH like Soler or fill that spot with players on days off? Boy, with all their prospects that they have, position player prospects, I don't know if I'd want to go and, and plug that hole at DH, especially with Pete Alonso being your first baseman. Um, man, uh, I, I, that would be an interesting signing. And as I was telling Tim, I like some of the stuff the Mets have done this offseason. Steven Schulman at Pro Bono Dude writes in, when Marcus Stroman hits his fan graphs projection of 9-9, nine and nine, 4.17 ERA, we'll surely hear that he can't handle New York, the oldest trick in the book to blame the player for an ordinary down year that management knew was a likely outcome. I like this. I respectfully disagree with you, Steven. I can't imagine of all the things that are said about Marcus Stroman this year that he can't handle New York would be one of them because this is like his place. <laughs> he's done it before. for the Mets. Right. That's not going to be a factor. I do think uh, people wonder about where he is physically after finishing the with injuries in the second half of last year. I thought it was a good signing by the Yankees to get some innings. All hail the Stone King, he writes, and I know analysts, reporters, etc. like to reference the war of a player. Do the GMs and execs value this as well? How does war truly translate when you factor in injuries and does the amount of money over replacement play a factor in negotiations? Yes, uh, they do reference it with position players in casual conversations as sort of a, you know, just a thumbnail like, well, that guy's a three war player. Or that guy's a four war player with pitchers. I still hear starting pitchers. I still hear, hear ERA. The conversation I had with the evaluator this morning, he mentioned that he was like, well, you know, this guy got to have four six last year. He had a three two last year. Um, that's an interesting question. Yes. War is used in reference to position players. Last one for today, P.K. Steinberg writes, and come to think of it, are there even really any quality picture, pitchers available, or players, I should say, available for trade to even tempt the prospect hoarding Orioles? Dylan Cease, Corbin Burns, ever heard of him? Yeah, P.K., I mean, Dylan Cease, uh, to me, we talked about this last week, like he would be a perfect fit for the Orioles. Uh, the White Sox are perceived to have put a really high asking price on him, but you know, a couple of evaluators spoke with in the last 24 hours say there's no pressure on the White Sox. Like, there's not a concern that Dylan Cease is going to break down. And the general perception is, is, despite the fact that he struggled last year, uh, that he's a better pitcher than he showed, and they think there's going to be a bounce back this year. And they expect the White Sox to, you know, conduct business as if there is no pressure. Alrighty, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter over the next week. We'll be back, uh, yeah, in about a week with another pod. All right, that's it for today. My thanks to Tim, Sarah, Hembo, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. <laughs>